Hello and welcome to the May instalment of the Shameless Book Club. This month we tucked into Swing Time by Zadie Smith, a novel that tells the story of two girls growing up on the wrong side of London who meet at a community dance class and dream of being dancers, but only one of them has the talent. The blurb told us it was a tale of friendships that anchor us, define us and change us forever. But do we feel that line adequately explained what the book was about? As with any Zadie Smith novel, this one came with hype. Her clever observations, the depth of her characters, the nuance in her words. There is simply so much (laughs) to unpack here. As always, I am joined by my co-hosts, Michelle Andrews and Annabelle Lee. How are we? We're good. good. <laughs> We're ready to discuss this book. The I think tone. we all have lots of thoughts. Many thoughts. Many mixed opinions. <laughs> many thoughts. To start today, let's first hear from listener Laura. I love Zadie Smith, but this book felt a lot more dull and lifeless to me than any of her other plots and characters. I would love to see you for example, read something like On Beauty, but Swing Time just didn't do it for me. All right, Annabelle, Zadie Smith comes with a lot of hype, as I said in the intro. I actually hadn't read any of Zadie Smith's books before this, had you? No, I had not. I had heard a lot about her previous books and like seen her name around because she is quite a smart lady. Yes. (laughs) And so last night, because this book was so confusing to me, I decided to watch some interviews with her. And my God, she's so, so engaging as a speaker and also very, very smart, as we know. Yeah. Quite intimidating, though, when I think about how hard I found it was to read this book. Yeah, because you know you're reading a smart person and if you don't understand the smart person's (laughs) word, what is that saying about us? We will get to that. Mish, let's do some background on Zadie Smith before we start. Zadie Smith is the child of a Jamaican mother and English father. I think some people will hear some obvious parallels when I read out the details of her upbringing. Her parents divorced when she was a teenager. She grew up loving dancing, particularly tap dancing, and considered a career in musical theatre before she went into writing. Why did she do that? Because she's an incredible singer, jazz singing in particular, which she did throughout university to earn money. That's too many skills for one person for mine. Like, she should <laughs> only be kept to one skill. She's 45 now and lives in London. Zadie's first book, White Teeth, was published in 2000 when she was just 24 years old. The story behind this book just blows my mind because this book was initially introduced to the publishing world when it was a partial manuscript. She started writing it at 21 and it led to this huge auction for the manuscript's rights and I just can't get over how you'd write something so critically acclaimed at the age of just 21. I mean, Time magazine included the novel in its list of the 100 best English language novels from 1923 to 2005. Well, this is the thing. There were 80 pages in that manuscript the auction was won with a £250,000 bid. 80 Crazy. pages must have been fucking good to Insane. get that sum of money. Must have been concise. Very different <laughs> to, the, to the material in Swing Time. Sorry to Stop be so rude. Spoiling. <laughs> so Swing Time, let's talk about this one in particular. What I find really interesting about Zadie Smith is how well known she's been for so long. As we said, her first book was published in 2000. It's now 2021 or 2021. <laughs> and it must be an incredible amount of pressure for a young writer to 
consider how much you have to kind of back up old work. Mm. Like how much she's struggled with fame and kind of rejecting the public spotlight has also been in a really interesting thread along her career. Yeah, exactly right. It is her fifth novel and she's also not on social media at all. Doesn't have a Twitter account, doesn't have an Instagram account. And I wonder if part of that is actually needing to protect herself from public feedback and kind of commentary on her work and who she is as a person. She rose to fame so, so young. So it's not all that surprising that she would want to retreat from that and have some kind of privacy and sacred space away from the public eye when she is such a household name in literature. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because when I was watching those interviews, she is quite reserved in that with her private life, she doesn't like to share a lot because she's got kids. So it's understandable. Yeah, I don't even know if it seems to be a case of like being worried about feedback. There's this incredible interview that she did with The Guardian in 2000 when she was obviously very young, just publishing her first book. And she said, I have an ambition to write a great book, but that's really a competition with myself. I've noticed that a lot of young writers, particularly people in all media, want to be famous, but they don't really want to do anything. I can't think of anything less worth striving for than fame. Yikes. Big yikes. Okay, so when it comes to swing time itself, this was her fifth book. Yeah, published in 2016. When you open swing time, you will have to go through three or four pages of back-to-back glowing feedback on the book from everyone from the Daily Telegraph to the Sunday Times to Marie Claire magazine. So you open this and you're really gunning for the book. You're like, wow, everyone adores this. I mean, on the cover alone, we have superb Financial Times Book of the Year, breathtaking TLS Books of the Year, brilliant Guardian Books of the Year. (laughs) So expectations are high. And I wonder if that actually worked against my experience of this book, because I was looking at a 10 out of 10 when I opened that first page, being like, people friggin' love this. And every single page felt like a letdown. Yeah, I agree. I was a little bit hesitant at the start, though, because when I know the author has had a large body of work that was pretty well received, I get a bit nervous that the content will be too complicated for me and that I won't understand it. You mentioned, Mish, that her mother is Jamaican and her father English. On the background of Zadie's parents, I did in that same interview that I keep mentioning that I watched, listen to her speak about how when she was growing up, having a black mother and a white father was kind of uncommon in her community, which is why she really wanted to delve into that dichotomy with Tracy and the narrator in the book. So the protagonist had a Jamaican mother as well and a white father, whereas Tracy had the inverse of that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, before we move to actually delving into the book, I wanted to read out the intro from a 2000 article about Zadie Smith for no other reason than I just found it odd, (laughs) if you don't mind me. We will humour you. (laughs) So Simon Haddonstone for The Guardian wrote about Smith in 2000. It can't be easy being Zadie Smith. She's become so much more famous than her celebrated first novel because she had the fortune or misfortune to be the perfect demographic, young, attractive, black, female and very talented. She is everything the media hankers for, the ideal head and shoulders to parade on a newspaper's masthead. Perhaps inevitably, she's also the object of huge envy. Before meeting her, so many people, mainly women, tell me they've heard she's bitchy, smug, (gasps) cold, a fake, you name it. What the fuck is that? 100%. I was like, no fucking wonder she doesn't want anything to do with the public eye if this was what coverage was like in 2000. What publication was that, sorry? The Guardian. The Guardian. Yeah. God. I mean, I will say as well, 
Delving back into the shit that newspapers pushed in the early and mid-2000s is something that we have really had our jaws on the floor about in the Shameless Office when researching not only the books of a book club, but also scandal episodes. The stuff that was published about women in the public eye around the 2000 to 2005 era is so screwed up. Yeah, 100%. Let's get into the writing style to start. We've got a voicemail from Sarah. Hey guys, unfortunately I didn't make it through this month's book pick swing time. I did find Zadie's writing really clever and I was really intrigued by Tracy's character as well as the mother's character, but I sort of just felt like we were given a lot of unnecessary information and I sort of got really bored and then I found myself skipping paragraphs and then I found out it didn't really matter when I was skipping the paragraphs and I just thought, nah, life is too short. So once I put the book down... I didn't pick it back up. All right, Michelle, we're starting with the writing style, the structure, because I feel like it's one of the more contentious points about a book like this one. Talk to me. Sarah, 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 thank you for calling in with that voicemail. <laughs> you summed up everything that I felt when I read this book. If I wasn't a host, one of the three people on this <laughs> podcast, I would not have finished Swing Time. There is absolutely no way. The only thing that motivated me to keep going after page like 300 was I have to do an episode on this. I can't sit down and not know what the <laughs> hell happened. It's your job. <laughs> yeah. I've got to say, apart from Sarah's voicemail, the one other review that I have seen online that really encapsulates how I felt about Zadie Smith's writing was from John Boyne, who writes for the Irish Times. He said, the tone of this novel is faulty from the start. The first person narrator of a long novel needs to have a lively voice, one that can engage the reader early on, but she's so dull, lacking any discernible wit, intelligence or ambition that she feels less of an independent character and more of an appendage to others, whether friend, daughter or assistant. I completely agree with this. I felt like there was no life in this story. I was given a bunch of details about shit that was irrelevant or didn't matter or was boring. And I have never in my history of reading checked what page I'm on so much. It felt like this went for years. Annabelle. Yes, I agree. <laughs> but God, listening to you read out that review, it makes me so nervous to ever publish a book. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just ignore that shit, Annabelle. <laughs> so I'm usually of the opinion that if I'm not understanding a book, I can just go to the audiobook. For and sure. that's what I did. I had to drive three hours last weekend and I thought this is the perfect time to focus my energy on this book. <laughs> But I couldn't. And I found it, as Sarah said, really boring, which is, I feel so bad to say, but I was truly bored. And I tried to go back and reread it in its physical form, still bored. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the crux of the matter is, doesn't matter if you go audio or normal, it's bad. I feel like as I read this book, it's just not the kind of book that's written for the every man or every woman. Yeah. Like I tried to read every single word and I have to say I'm a bit of a skim reader generally, but I was like for this book, because there are so many words and so much detail, I felt like I needed to read all of it because if I didn't, I simply wouldn't understand the plot. So I read every word and then still found myself not totally understanding the plot. And I felt so robbed because I was like, I made such an effort with this. Yes. I made such an effort to consume as much of it as I could so I could really be thinking about what you were trying to say. But it feels like work like Zadie's 
so much of it is a bit of a puzzle. Like a lot of the stuff in this book felt like guesswork, like nothing was ever, ever said explicitly, which makes you feel amazing when it clicks because you feel like the smartest person ever. But when it doesn't, you just feel stupid. Like it reminds me of having a friend, right, who doesn't really update you on like the specifics of their life or the updates and then drops really big life changes on you as if you were always meant to know about them. And you sort of just like simply nod along being like, yes, yes, of course I knew about this because if I didn't, I'm a terrible friend. That's how it felt like. What a niche, interesting parallel. (laughs) It works. It does. I truly think, though, the investment with this book was so high. The payoff was so low. I totally accept that Zadie Smith is a genius writer. I think she's an incredible artist, incredible mind. Clearly, we have seen that across her body of work. Like, no one can put out what she has and no one can be denied their talent. She is hugely talented. However, I'm also a believer that you can be a genius and do some incredible work and put out a book that's not very good. Like, I don't think that if people simply didn't like Swing Time, they didn't get some greater message or they're not smart enough. Beyonce puts out bad music from time to time. Zadie Smith might put out bad books too. And that's a thread that I found on Goodreads. Even massive fans of Zadie Smith, while the book reviewers at large tended to like this book, Zadie's loyal fans, the reader fan base, didn't like this when they had absolutely adored other books of hers. And I don't think that's our fault. I think it's just (laughs) not a very good product at times, particularly when it came to sentence structure. I found that some sentences were like five lines long and they were filled with commas to the point where I had to go back to the start and be like, what? Like, can we break this up? Is it possible to break this up? And would it be a more powerful experience? In my opinion, yes. Yeah, those commas didn't translate well when I was listening to the audio book. <laughs> yeah. It made it so confusing. I do agree with you. It seems a bit condescending of me to say there was so much potential in this book to Zadie Smith. Come on, Annabelle, just be honest. <laughs> but there was so much potential. I wonder if you guys agree with me on this. I feel like this book would make for kind of a beautiful movie because of the slowness in, as you say, the sentence structure and the paragraphs and each chapter and the whole book altogether was kind of slow. And if a movie done well is able to capture that slowness, it kind of makes for an enchanting watch, don't you think? Nothing (laughs) happened though. But I would really be intrigued to see it as a film because I think one thing that was really clear in this book, and I don't say it about many books, is even though I found it dense and I found the plot a bit nothing you to be yeah. totally honest with you I could see every scene yeah. very clearly like I could see Africa I could see YTV I could see Amy I could see all of it I couldn't at all really I could see it all so wow. well and I would love I don't know why that is but it's like that's why I can see the movie in my mind yeah. moving I much prefer the first half of this book to the second I think although I really adored some of like the scenes in Africa I think the storyline in the first half was far more alluring to me like that relationship between Tracy and the protagonist was really intriguing, Mm. I think. And that's what made me want to keep going. I agree with you when it comes to visualising chapters. I could visualise every scene in the opening third of the book. I felt like the childhood chapters were so poignant and beautifully told and visual. They really reminded me, I don't know if you guys have read Eleanor Ferrante's Neapolitan novels, but the first book in that series is called My Brilliant Friend. And if the listeners haven't read that one either, it is one of my all-time favourite reads. It's about childhood friendship and it's absolutely gorgeous. This seemed so much like that. So I actually really enjoyed looking at competitiveness and admiration and adoration for each other as children, particularly as young girls. I mean, I think anyone 
with a female friendship at a young age, like that very tender age of 10, knows how complicated that dynamic can be. So I really did enjoy the first third of this book. What about you, Annabelle? Did you like the first childhood chapters? I did. And because this book kept jumping back and forth, I was like, this is promising. Maybe I'll get more of the childhood stuff. But it kind of slowed (laughs) because I generally like childhood storylines. And with this one, I found that I was wanting more of it because I didn't quite understand the protagonist. I didn't really know what she was about. I didn't really get her. And I was like, maybe if we were given more of her childhood background and those friendship family relationships, I'll be able to understand her more. But that never really happened. It's interesting because I feel like with this kind of writing and this sort of structure, it feels like the type of writing you need to go slow with and to take a lot of time with. And I didn't leave myself that much time to read this book before the podcast. And I was like, I'd love to do this again and have time because there were so many beautiful lines in there. Like some of the lines really did make me stop. And I was like, fuck, that's really well put together. Like I loved that. Like there's this scene where the protagonist is Googling whether Amy has more money than the country that they're working in. And the line was, it took more than half an hour. And when the two sums of money I was looking for finally appeared in their adjacent windows, all I did was sit and stare at them for a long time. In the comparison, as it turned out, Amy came out a little ahead. And just like that, the GDP of an entire country could fit into a single person like one Russian doll into another. Mm. And I'm like, if you want to you know, really ram your point home, you can do it through very beautiful sentences like that. Yeah, I agree. I think the writing in some patches was brilliant. It's a shame that it was let down by the complete lack of plot, I think. I also think the book failed to deliver on a promise that it made us or that the publisher made us. Maybe it wasn't Zadie Smith's fault, but reading the blurb, I thought I was going to get a really poignant tale about friendship in general. And I got that in the first few chapters, the first section. When the friendship fell away and I learned that the protagonist had not spoken to Tracy for eight years and had barely been in contact, I was kind of like, I feel robbed. Like I (laughs) thought this was going to be a friendship that was complicated, of course, but that was a constant in the protagonist's life. And I think to sell this book as a book about friendship is actually quite misleading. But then I don't know what you would say this book is about because it doesn't really feel like it's about any one thing at all. So this is the interesting part, and maybe I'm jumping ahead because we've gone from writing all the way to storylines, but you've brought up that friendship. I kind of agree with you. It kind of got to the point where it's like, well, this friendship isn't much now, right? But then it's like, well, how do you define friendship? Like maybe people define it differently. And then in Zadie Smith's mind and in the publisher's mind, you don't have to constantly be in contact with someone for them to have a huge impact on your life and for them to sort of still be a central part of it. Yeah, I feel like it is a realistic portrayal of what a lot of friendships look like. You can go eight years without speaking to someone and still be thinking about them a lot in those eight years. Mm, One point on writing, and I'm sorry for a silly point, but I need to get this off my chest. What does she kissed her teeth mean? Because I read that. (laughs) At least six or Did seven you try times. To do it. I was I, doing it. While I was reading. doing it. Don't make the noise. And she wrote don't. it once, and I was like, "What's that?" And then I read it like five more times throughout the novel, like. What is kissed your teeth? Like, does that mean you're... <laughs> I don't know, but I it was hilariously one of those things that I tried to do myself to try and work it out as I was reading. Zadie, if you're listening, what the hell is that? <laughs> Coming up after the break, what we loved, what we hated, and what the hell was up with the unnamed protagonist. But first, a word from today's sponsor. I was actually very pleasantly surprised by Swing Time. I didn't have super high expectations going into it and ended up really loving it. Particularly, I loved the storyline of Amy in Africa and the exploration of whether rich people just like throwing money at cultures that perhaps need resources is a good thing or whether that can be super harmful. 
That was listener Greta, who did, as we hear, actually quite like this book. Let's start then with a conversation about characters. Greta just mentioned Amy. I have a lot of thoughts about Amy, but Annabelle, I want to hear yours first. Yes, Amy was one of the few characters that I found interesting. I thought that she was unlikable and likable at the same time in that she was like kind of a well-rounded character. Mm. Like she seemed quite real. Not that I know many pop stars or musicians, (laughs) but she seemed like all of her faults were backed up by a human quality, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, backed up by ego, right? I think she was deeply unlikable, but deeply captivating. And she's one of the only characters that seemed to actually pull me in when it came to this book. I think it would be fair to say that Amy is based around the real life celebrity of Madonna. Of course, we have the parallels of 80s pop sensation, megastar, highly sexual in her early career, turning to Africa to do philanthropic work, maybe a little bit on the surfacey side when it comes to actually doing charity Broad. I mean, in my research for this episode, I did find this interesting passage in a CNN article from 2013. Malawi's Minister for Education has accused Madonna of bullying officials and exaggerating the extent of her charity in the country. For her part, Madonna described the reports as inaccurate and pledged to continue helping educate young girls in the nation. For some years now, Madonna had literally and figuratively adopted that country and two of its children. She also made a documentary about her work. But it was clear that her relationship with Malawi, like many patron-client relations, would lead to quarrels and recriminations. I think the character of Amy was the most captivating and the most realistic as we do see celebrities do this time and time again, particularly when they say they want to help a cause. That desire to help a cause is probably legitimate, but they're too far up their own asses, for lack of a better term, to actually do much good. Well, it comes down to the question of like, why do they want to help this cause? Because in this case in particular, it very much seemed like a branding piece rather than a genuine Mm. desire to help. I hated Amy, but she was the only character that made sense to me, I guess, because I could see her. It's someone or something that we see all the time. Like, as you said, Mish, a celebrity heading to Africa to quote unquote, make change, but taking an army of press with them or creating change in the only way they know how, which in this case was creating a school for empowered girls or illuminated girls, completely forgetting the young boys of the town who were left at an old school with sort of no one looking after them or no money being thrown at them. Mm -hmm. Like it was also a project that just felt like everybody else needed to keep running for her. And she just lost interest in straight away. Yeah, (laughs) Exactly. So she was infuriating, but so interesting. And I don't know about you guys, but I must have forgotten in the first time we were introduced to Amy that she was Australian, I think I must have forgotten because the minute they mentioned Bendigo, I was like, oh, there must be a Bendigo in the UK. (laughs) And then when Judy started talking about Aussie Bendigo, I was like, it's the Bendigo. Oh, in the audio book, the Judy's Aussie accent. I got to give props to this uh, audio (laughs) book narrator. She put on like 20 billion different accents and really nailed each of them. That's amazing. Judy sucked, by the way. Oh, yeah, she was the worst. What was wrong with Judy? I did not buy that someone would be so rude and so cold over like exchanges or text messages or emails and phone calls. The way Judy was written, felt too exaggerated for me to believe. I want to talk about the protagonist because the protagonist didn't actually have a name and I did not realise this till I was reading (laughs) reviews of the book. Me too. And I don't know if that's either a really good thing about how this character was written or a really terrible thing, but I really didn't warm to her at all. I feel like she had such little conviction and just let her life be ruled by Tracy or Amy, even her mother. But then I'm like... 
is that a criticism of the character if the character knows that about themselves? Like Mm. there was this passage early on in the book that only made more sense much later where it was after she was watching a Fred Astaire clip and she has this epiphany after watching it and she said, I saw all my years at once but they were not piled up on each other, experience after experience, building into something of substance, the opposite. A truth was being revealed to me that I had always tried to attach myself to the light of other people, that I had never had any light of my own. I experienced myself as a kind of shadow. Mm. It reminds me of what that review that you read out where the writer said that they were just like an appendage to others. And it's like, yes, she really has no defining features other than the people in her life and it frustrated me to no end. What do you think, Mish? She's also not very kind. No. She barely bothered to keep in touch with any of her friends, failed to return their calls or their messages to catch up. She had no real connection with her own mother, despite her mother sitting across from her at dinner, looking gravely ill, having scabs on her head, looking like she had lost weight, like for the protagonist to not even think, maybe I should ask, maybe I should do some investigation into how my mum's doing, just screamed out to me that she was so self-interested and so callous to the people in her life, to have a mother who is in a hospice because she is dying and for you to not even know she's there. Yes, on one hand, you could say she was protected by her mother. Her mother didn't want her to know. But on the other hand, even if someone doesn't want you to know, they're your mother and you should be seeing them more than once every eight months. Agree. Yeah, I think though those weaknesses probably stem or definitely stem from something that happens in childhood, right? Which is why I wanted, again, to read those childhood storylines so much more. I also didn't realise the narrator didn't have a name until the very end, but I took it as kind of a testament to Zadie Smith's writing in that she could portray this character I didn't really like so much, who didn't really have many redeeming qualities without me ever stopping and being like, what's her name? Who is she? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it was quite seamless. Yeah, you know what? You're probably right. It's probably a strength for the writing rather than a weakness. I mean, speaking on the self-centeredness of the protagonist, I wanted to read you a passage because I want to know if you think this is really indicative of the character or if we're all a bit like this. But it was basically the scene where she's in New York for a party at Amy's house and she sees both Fern and Lamon there. She said, in my mind at that time, as perhaps it is for most young people, I was at the centre of things, the only person in the world with true freedom. I moved from here to there, observing life as it presented itself to me, but everybody else in these scenes, all the subsidiary characters belonged only to the compartments in which I had placed them. Fern, eternally in the pink house, Lamon confined to the dusty paths of the village. What were they doing here now in my New York? Mm. And I'm like, is that a human characteristic where you are the main character in your own life or is that telling us that she's just really fucking selfish and can't see these people outside of Africa? Maybe both things at once. Mm. Can we hone in on Lamon, please? Yeah. (laughs) Please. Okay. I read the passage where the protagonist decided that she was going to sleep with Lamon and apparently that was immediately obvious to both of them while they were standing there. Sorry, if I may interrupt for a second. You can't just look at each other and be like, and so then we both decided without words or any sort of body language that we were just going to sleep together. Out of nowhere we were going to fuck when we've had no sexual chemistry or real connection throughout the entire book. What was with that? That felt like something was just thrown in at the end to be like, and then they started this sexual affair despite him being connected to Amy and like this makes no sense to anyone and she's lighting her life on fire but screw it, it's going to add some weird narrative device. What 
was with this. Nah, I agree. But I also wasn't as outraged at the time when I read it. I was kind of like, yeah, some people can be self-destructive. Like, I think the narrator knew that eventually Amy would find out and she would lose her job. Like, subconsciously she knew and she kind of wanted to destroy that. Self-sabotage, perhaps. Yes. But then having a character at the centre of a book that is just incredibly self-destructive just feels like a cliche. Yeah. Like, it just feels like every book ever written. And it's like, that's not exactly an individual or unique point of a novel. Also, if you're going to include sex, that is the one thing that will keep me interested. <laughs> you jibbed me again and again, Zadie Smith, because every time sex happened, it was like, anyway, then they slept together and I'm leaving his house now. It's like, no, 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 take me back. What happened? Was the sex good? Was it bad? Where was his hand? Where was his yeah. hand? <laughs> you absolute sickos. Did he graze your face adoringly before he did you on his bed? Like, what is going on in this sex scene? That is the one thing I'm interested in. Please give me more. She gave me nothing. It was sexless. Yeah, it 100% was. Can we talk about the protagonist's mother? I loved her. She was my favourite character by far. Like, what an absolute jet. There was an interesting quote in the book that I took a photo of that I had to rewrite down because I didn't have the bloody page number, so I had to transcribe (laughs) it into my notes. But the protagonist wrote in this book, The fundamental skill of all mothers, the management of time, was beyond her. She measured time in pages. Half an hour to her meant 10 pages read, or 14 depending on the size type. And when you think of time in this way, there isn't time left for anything else. There's no time to go to the park and get ice cream, no time to put a child to bed, no time to listen to the teary recounting of a nightmare. And it's like, I read this thinking, I love this character so much and she's not maternal at all. Like Mm. if anything, this protagonist feels a little bit neglected by her own mother. But then she had a wonderful father who did all of this for her. And I just, I loved that the mother didn't give a fuck and wanted to make change on a macro level rather than a micro level. I mean, I wouldn't want it in my own life. (laughs) I'm very glad to have a mother that cares. But beyond that, I'm like, how good having a a person that just wants to create change everywhere? She was my favourite character. Agree? Yes, she was one of my favourite characters as well. And she also made me think, about motherhood. I mean, we've had a lot of conversations about this and it was also referenced quite a bit in this book, but it made me think about why we choose to become mothers. I also wanted to read out a passage just very quickly. Go for your life. You don't need to be quick, Annabelle. (laughs) Take your time. so slow. (laughs) Don't be that slow. (laughs) Okay. It reads, long before it became her career, my mother had a political mind. It was in her nature to think of people collectively. Even as a child, I noticed it and felt instinctively that there was something chilly and unfeeling in her ability to analyse so precisely the people she lived among, her friends, her community, her own family. We were all at one and at the same time, people she knew and loved, but also objects of study, living embodiments of all she seemed to be learning up at Middlesex Poly. So I think that obviously it's far more complex than this, but the narrator seemed to feel that her mother wasn't always the best mother and perhaps was too big picture to care for an individual. And I just think that's so interesting that like her mother ends up being a mother But maybe it wasn't right for her. Like maybe she didn't have the characteristics or the qualities to be a caring mother. Yeah. She wasn't that likeable again, but in some ways was so powerful and rebelled against what you would expect Mm. for women so much that you couldn't help but admire her. One analysis from Zadie Smith that has stuck with me and that I read and thought, wow, that is like a gut punch. And that has so succinctly put this together in a way I've never seen an author do before. And I wish I had the passage in front of me. I don't. I think you guys will remember it, though. 
When she summed up why people gravitate towards conspiracy theories and why people who feel like they've had power stripped away from them and that they don't have much and that other people have so much power, they do come up with these theories as to where the power is in the world because they don't see any of it. I feel like that was such a great way to sum it up because conspiracy theories do confound and confuse us so often when we see them in the people around us. But I think when you do see that and you think about that analysis of it's people who don't feel like they have any power making sense of the world and trying to figure out where the power is. That really becomes clear to me. I'm sorry to bring us to this next. I could not get past the sex doll scene. So that seemed to be a lie? A lie? Yeah, I think Tracy made that up. I don't think she made that up. I think that was real. It was never clarified, but I got the sense that it was not true. Why? I think because it was that idea that Tracy was definitely trying to bring the protagonist down, that it came the morning after she was leaving the job at the play, Mm. that she'd found something better in her life and Tracy knew that she didn't have anywhere else to live. So she's like, fuck you, I'm going to ruin your relationship with your dad so that you don't have anywhere to go. Did you think it was a lie, Annabelle? I didn't think it was a lie, but that makes a lot of sense because I loved the father up until that point. I really did like the character of the protagonist's dad and then that scene happened and I was like, oh, my God. Well, it didn't make me not like the dad. I believed that it was a true story. I think it just made me feel really sympathetic and sad for the dad, like pitiful for the dad almost that – He was clearly very, very lonely and making decisions that didn't make much sense, but we knew that he was lonely and we knew that that was kind of his approach to the world at that point in time. It was just a a scene that was really vivid where I was like, I don't even know what to make of any of that really. Yeah, I think the only thing that made sense for me was for it to not be true. That's the only kind of way I could make sense of the story. I mean, the person that we still haven't really delved into before we move on was Tracy. Like she was meant to be one of the core characters of this book and she seemed a bit awful. Like, what did I miss about her character? Because I feel like I really missed something quite huge because why was the protagonist so drawn to her after all these years and all these terrible things? I understand childhood is quite formative, particularly when you're in a community dance class where you're the only two black girls in the class and there's a real bond that they had from there. But 30 years later, we're really still talking about her? I thought it was the sexual abuse by her dad. Did anyone else pick this up? I want to read out a passage because I wanted to make sure that This was the inference that Tracy was being sexually assaulted by her father. So I'm going to read it out. This is from page 264. After a strangely long pause, Louis answered the door. I was surprised. We seemed to have surprised each other. He wiped some sweat from above his moustache and asked me gruffly what I wanted. Before I could answer, I heard Tracy, in a funny sort of voice, I almost didn't recognise it, shouting at her father to let me in. And Louis nodded and let me pass, but walked the other way, straight out of the door and along the corridor. I watched him hurry down the stairs, across the lawn and away. I turned back into the flat, but Tracy was not in the hall, and then not in the living room, and then not in the kitchen. I had the feeling she was leaving each room a moment before I reached it. I found her in the bathroom. I would have said she had recently been crying, but I can't be sure. I said hello. At the same moment, she looked quickly down at herself at the same spot I was looking at, straightening her crop top until it was once again fully covering her bra. That to me was the reason that the protagonist kept Tracy in her life because she knew on some level that she was being sexually abused. I mean, I definitely got that sense that Louis was assaulting her from that scene. And I maybe maybe the protagonist is a better person than perhaps we thought, that she wanted yeah. to protect Tracy. Maybe that's what I'd missed. Yeah, I didn't not like Tracy. I really sympathised with her. 
In that interview that I keep mentioning with Zadie Smith, she said that Tracy was someone with a ton of spirit and energy engaged in like a very unique battle of her own, which I'm guessing is alluding to the sexual assault. And so I think when you have that kind of energy and it's stripped away by something that's pretty traumatic, it really like fucks you up as a person. I also think that when it comes to talent and the different paths that being so intensely talented can take you down. Tracy really exemplified that really well in a character. So Zadie told NPR, some societies say, well, you have this gift and everything accrues to you because of it. And if you don't have this gift, bad luck, dude, you failed the life game. When I'm writing, it's a constant question. Yeah. I mean, because she had the talent for so long and she was using it for a certain level, but then it's kind of like the cycle of what her life was meant to look like was almost always going to come after her. Yeah. I want to go to our last voicemail for today. This is from Rama. Hey guys, it's Rama. When I found out Swing Time was Book of the Month, I was so excited because generation stories are quite typically up my alley and this book had so many astronomically positive reviews that I just couldn't wait to dig into it. However, I just couldn't get around it. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was just my little pea brain, but I was about 98% into the book and I had no fucking clue what was happening or what the point of this story was. I found the time jumps really confusing. I found the storylines just way too conflicting. She, I think they were just trying to pack way too much into this book. I love that line from Rama. I don't know if it was just my little pea brain <laughs> because I can absolutely confirm I had thoughts very similar as I read. Mish, let's start with you. We're talking about what worked and what didn't work. What comes to mind when I ask you that question? Oh, what worked? The childhood chapters, I've already said that. I'm kind of clutching at straws to generally say anything else. I mean, I didn't <laughs> I didn't mind some of the passages in West Africa. It was an unspecified country, but looking at a map, it's probably most likely to be Gambia based on what Zadie Smith kind of alluded to throughout the book. I don't have much positive to say about this book, honestly. I feel like there's this idea that if you're not a deep thinker or an intelligent thinker, you're not going to enjoy this. But I feel like we've tackled some really highbrow books on this book club, like Bernadine Evaristo's Girl, Woman, Other, that made you work for it, but the work paid off. This just didn't pay off for me, honestly. And I loved Rama's message. I agreed with so much of that. But when she said that she felt like they tried to pack too much in, I kind of agree and I kind of don't. I feel like we had almost the beginnings of a bunch of different books that kind of touched on topics that we never revisited. But at the same time, we also said nothing at all. And I left this book with zero profound feelings, which has rarely happened to me when I've finished a book. And about what worked to start. What worked? <laughs> I agree with Michelle. Like I've already said all the bits that I liked. I did think that Zadie Smith did a really good job of painting certain scenes and making me visualize it. I think she's really good at that. But I do agree with Rama as well. I think it's a little bit frustrating when you read almost 500 pages of words that you think will be penetrating because you know Zadie Smith is smart and that she has a lot to say. But then by the end of it, you just feel like you're not smart enough to be able to absorb it. And I hate that feeling as a reader. So yeah, I just kept asking myself, especially by the end of the book, does it have to be easy to read to be considered good? And my gut tells me yes, 
But did you like Girl with Another? I did. I loved that book. See, but that wasn't easy to read. So that's interesting. I also listened to a lot of that through an audiobook. Yeah. So yeah. the punctuation issues weren't really mm. that much of a problem for me, but I did get used to that. Interesting. It's interesting because I don't think a book has to be easy to read to like it. I think you can put books in two different camps, mm. like the book that's just like for joy, for absolute joy that you can smash through. And then there's the book that asks you to work for it, as Mish said, that takes more time, but hopefully does pay off. I mean, I think that Zadie Smith is stupidly observational. Like there were just tiny lines in this book that made me like really go, wow. It was almost quite cutting the way that she was able to observe things. And I think that's why I was drawn to continually turning the pages because I really wanted to see her work even more. And I think in this case, I really wanted the book to get better. Although the book itself felt a little bit like homework, I think that's how Mm. the sense that I had about it. And it was like homework that I didn't fully understand and that felt like work to understand. I really do think it's a book I want to come back to in a couple of years because when it comes to this book, I was actually given this book for my birthday five years ago. Wow. And I read maybe the first third and didn't understand shit, like at all. And then so when we chose it for book club this year, I was like, this is great. I'm five years older. I'm five years smarter. Let's see how I go. And I made much more progress then. So I was like, okay, well, what if I pick this up in five years again? Like I know it's not the most like enjoyable way to look at reading. It's not my approach to every book or even reading in general. But I think this is the kind of book I want to touch base with in Mm. five years to be like, okay, what do I think of this now? And how has my brain developed? And how do I see it differently? Because I really think it will have changed. Mm. I do have one thing that I think would have served this book well, other than a few sex scenes to get us all through (laughs) humor and I don't know if Zadie Smith doesn't like writing humor maybe that's not her strong point but there was not a time reading this that I smiled or giggled or felt light about anything there really wasn't any funny characters or joyful characters in this a lot of people felt very bogged down and I think this would have been served well by funny moments. Yeah, perhaps. I didn't feel like deprived of funniness in this book, though. I mean, it's kind of a serious book. I was just (laughs) actually expecting it to be what it ended up being. Yeah, right. I think I smiled as I was reading twice. And I can't remember what the moments were, but they were like these really two really dry moments. And I don't think she gravitates to like outlandish (laughs) humour by any sense, but I remember reading two really dry things being like, that's pretty good. But beyond that, no, there wasn't much light. The last thing I want to say about this is I just actually felt there were too many characters. Like by the time we got to West Africa, I was like, I don't know how many more characters I can take right now because I can't picture all of them. Yeah, and they felt a little bit like they bled into the other. Like some characters actually served the same role and there wasn't enough to differentiate them to validate why we needed more than one. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. And also the ending was kind of confusing to me. Weirdly, yeah. I love that we're all like, eh, all of it's a bit no. Weirdly, though, the last line was one of the moments I do remember smiling. It was kind of nice to be like, and Tracy and her kids were dancing. Dancing on the like, balcony, oh. twirling. It was funny, but it was just kind of nice to see so, some sort of happiness. So this is the line. She was right above me on her balcony in a dressing gown and slippers, her hands in the air, turning, turning, her children around her, everybody dancing. Yeah, how nice is that? I mean, I'm yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it is the time that we have all been waiting for. I need your ratings. <laughs> Annabelle, I'm going to go with you first. We're doing out of five? We're doing out of five. I am going to go 2.5. Nice. Uh, one. One. Fuck. I think that's honestly my least favourite book by a decent way that we've done in book club. My other least favourite was A Lonely Girl <laughs> is a Dangerous Thing. This was considerably less enjoyable than even that. I'm going to give this a three and a half. Oh. Three and a half out of five. Yeah. 
because I found oh. it hard to understand, <laughs> but I actually enjoyed the process of reading it. I wouldn't do it all the time. I also gave myself longer than you did, Michelle, which I think it really helped. I read it over the course of like two and a half weeks rather than three nights. No, I read it over the course of five. I'll have people know. Other book clubs I've started two nights before we do the episode because I am a crammer. This one was the longest I've spent, but admittedly, maybe it's not long enough for the genius of Zadie Smith. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I think you need to ruminate on it for a while and I almost wish I gave myself longer, but I will give it three and a half stars because there were some bits that really got me Next month we are doing... We are doing New Animal by Australian author Ella Baxter. This is Ella Baxter's first novel and it is gritty, honest and full of sex, which is what I need. Interested? Because here is a passage from the book's publisher that my beloved friend Annabelle will read out. Hello! It reads, Exposed to other people's grief, trauma and pain on a daily basis, Amelia escapes her mind and body through sex with strangers, all of whom she quickly discards. However, when faced with her own trauma and grief, Amelia's desires and compulsions are challenged, and finding ways to escape her own mind becomes increasingly difficult. We cannot wait to sink our teeth into this one. If you want to read along, click our affiliate link in our show notes or the links on our Instagram page at The Shameless Book Club. As always, guys, we'll be back in your ears on Monday for another episode of A Scandal. Thank you so much for joining us this month on the bumpy ride. (laughs) Here's hoping next month is better. God, I hope so. No more one stars, guys. (laughs) I need a good book. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.